0: Hello, and welcome to the Permissionless Podcast. I'm your host, Selina Vidia, and on this podcast, we explore the journeys of creative entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs that you would see going from career to career. Today, I have a very special guest. I have Serini Rao. He is a bestselling author and host of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. He has candid conversations with people from all different backgrounds, professions, and walks of life. Srini, I first heard of you way back when I read The Art of Being Unmistakable, and it really spoke to me. It was a book that changed my view of the creative process and the creative side of careers because I was just making that shift in my life, and we ended up officially connecting in person and getting a chance to chat at a conference later. So the work that you do and the message you bring is really necessary, and I'm, I'm very glad that you're joining me on this episode.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: All right. So I want to jump way back, and I'm going to take it back to the beginning. So where are you from originally?
1: Well, that's a, that's a funny question because I kind of grew up all over the world. Uh, I was born in India, but my dad did his PhD in Australia. So we left India when I was three months old. I spent four years in Australia, went to pre-kindergarten there, Then we moved to Canada, where we spent four years in Edmonton, Alberta. Then we moved to Texas, where I lived for seven years between third and ninth grade. Then I moved to California, uh, Southern California, where I went to high school. And then I went to Berkeley as an undergrad, lived in San Francisco for about a decade, came back here, realized that I like warm weather and sunshine, which is why I'm never going back to the Bay Area. And, uh, in between that stints in Brazil and Costa Rica. So I I guess at the moment I'm from San Diego, but, uh, but I've, I've kind of lived all over.
0: Wow. So I always thought that I moved around and traveled a lot, um, but it is nothing in comparison to you. So that's, that's very impressive. And I, I feel like that's attributed a lot to just your, your general way of adapting and creating things and changing. Do you feel that starting at a young age and moving all over the place really helps solidify you as somebody who can adapt to change?
1: Well, yes and no. Uh, it, it's funny because I was, I was in a therapy session yesterday talking to uh, my therapist about the fact that we'd moved so much, particularly when you move after your freshman year in high school. Uh, that's incredibly disruptive to your life because you don't have this sense of continuity. There's a, a sort of sense of constant impermanence to everything and everybody in your life. And so in some ways it makes you really adaptable. In others, I think it makes it challenging because of the fact that you – you have a hard time letting people get too close, like you end up thinking that everybody and everything is impermanent as as a result of it. But uh, the constant moving, I think, is is one of the things that came from that is the fact that I've never stopped meeting new people. And I've always said it's not a coincidence that I built a platform where uh, I will never stop meeting new people. I think that that's like the, the Freudian expression of my work Is is, you know, uh, trying to satisfy this deep need for a connection, uh, that I think was lost as a byproduct of constantly moving.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. So for people who grow up in the same place and they spend a lot of time there, sometimes they never move out. It's really hard to connect with people from all walks of life because everything just seems so so foreign. The concepts, the way of life. Um, I lived overseas for a while and you know, going to school there and then coming back to America, it was so different getting back into the education system and the way that people are taught and even just the approach to balance and work in life. Um, so I, I definitely can appreciate that, you know, moving a lot gives you a chance to connect and, and you built a great platform using those skills. So it's um, funny how when you go all the way back and you look at common threads through your life, how that kind of leads you to where you are now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt.
0: And what are some of the the biggest challenges? So over the course of that time and kind of going through the metamorphosis of where you are now, what are some times where you felt that it was really trying, but it ultimately grounded you into the success you found at the moment?
1: Well, I think the the sort of really formative experience that led to what I am doing now is the period post-graduate school Uh, you know I finished Pepperdine uh, at the MBA program in April 2009 and then for anybody who who doesn't remember it there was a really really bad time to get out of school of any kind Uh, Mm -hmm. and even it it was incredibly challenging to start a career uh, or particularly another chapter of your career at a time when nobody was hiring Uh, nobody goes to grad school thinking that oh when I get out of grad school I'm gonna be unemployed in debt and the only jobs that are available are going to be jobs that pay $10 an hour, or you know, you're going to have to go go serve lattes, I was like, well, I didn't need an MBA to go serve lattes. Like, this is a complete waste of, of money and time. It was really, really demoralizing. And at the same time, I, I think that it was also a wake-up call, and it was an opportunity to recognize that, wait a minute, I'm submitting my resume, but my resume is nonsense because it's just uh, all these things I say I know how to do. It's not tangible evidence of anything. And so that really was what kicked off uh, where I am now, because that was when I realized I could use this time to build something, to to start sort of laying the seeds for something that might turn into something later on down the road. That period was also when I became an avid surfer. And I think that in particular was what really grounded me. Uh, I got to see that, okay, wait a minute, there are Ups and downs. I think that if there's anything that the ocean teaches you is that life, much like the ocean, is very dynamic. You know, you end up going through these experiences. You have ups and downs. You have highs and lows, uh, and and that's just part of it all. I, I think that being a surfer definitely made me much more adaptable. But I, I think the experience of not having something go according to your plan is one of the the most valuable things that could happen to somebody if they want to learn to be adaptable, because. When something literally goes, you know, just completely shot to hell the way it did for us when any of us graduated in April 2009, it forced us all to really re-examine our lives. I think for some people, they were insistent that they just persist through a system that ultimately uh, hasn't changed very much but for me, it was the moment when I got to say, "Okay, you know what? I've not really been successful at any of the jobs I've been at. So why on earth uh, would I try to keep going down this path?" And so that's that's kind of you know where it led me. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I I love that you're talking about the point you know in two thousand nine because I don't want to talk too much about about my my past, but I had to bring it up because it's so interesting. So I actually graduated that year too, and. My path was going to be finance. I went to school for business and finance. And the point at which I am in my career now is because I could not go and find a job. I could not get hired. Nobody was hiring anything. So I do think there's a special kind of serendipity in things not going according to plan because the path that gets laid out in front of you could be something that you didn't ever imagine could be there that would turn out to be the perfect place for you.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, 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 to me, it, it's been the ultimate blessing in disguise, but it didn't seem like it at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. So you did mention surfing, and I wanted to touch on that for a little bit. So the ocean does signify a lot of change, adaptability. It's one of the most powerful parts of nature in the world. Do you find that surfing is kind of a meditation for you, or is it a very mentally active type of sport where you're constantly on your toes? <sighs>
1: I think it is very much a meditation, but it's kind of a balance of both. I always say that you kind of live in the moment but keep your eyes on the horizon because you, you're you always keeping your eyes on the horizon because that's where the waves are coming from. So you're trying to see, okay, is this next wave coming? But at the same time, you have to remain really present because if your mind goes somewhere else and you're trying to surf, you end up eating it on waves. But I think the part of what Uh, makes it so meditative is the activity in and of itself forces a level of presence. For some strange reason, when you drop into a wave, uh, you're just completely absorbed by the experience. I don't think it's possible to think about anything else. Um, I think part of it is that the euphoria is so intense that it it just overwhelms you with joy. And so you're really not thinking about anything. I I think pretty consistently I can say, you know, I'm always in a better mood after uh, I get out of the water, even if it's an average surf session and, and, you know, the waves are really bad. If I manage to stand up or even catch a few waves, that fundamentally changes the way I feel about the entire day.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important for people to find that type of activity or something that grounds you in that way, especially you know, as an entrepreneur and a creative and somebody who's constantly thinking and on the go. So a lot of people have runner's high, there's kind of a surfer's meditation. For me, it was riding horses. You have, you know, a 1,200 pound animal underneath you and you have no choice but to be present or else you're going to end up in a tree on the ground or severely hurt. So that balance is a great and important point to have in your life.
1: Yeah, no doubt.
0: So, as far as once you graduated and you realize, you know, the economy is essentially tanking, and you have to solidify a new path for yourself after trying to send resumes out and finding a job, where walk me through what that looked like after school. How did you figure out where you wanted to be at that point in time, and and how did you start that process?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think that uh, you know the thing about that period was that despite the fact that we were in an economy that had gone into a tailspin, there were a lot of really interesting things going on. I think social media had just started to become much more mainstream in our culture. It was becoming very clear that these tools, despite the fact that they're a landmine of problems, now were actually really, really useful in our ability to uh, get our ideas out into the world and share them. You know, desktop publishing or, or you know, online publishing had become so much more easy. Like the things that used to take thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours, like building a website, suddenly could be done with you know hundreds of dollars in a few hours. And so I think that that fundamentally was a major change, and I saw that, and I saw that you could do things in really creative ways. So there was this girl, Jamie Verone, who had this website called Twitter Should Hire Me, which ended up leading to all sorts of of job offers and stuff for her. And I tried to replicate something similar by creating a website called 100 Reasons You Should Hire Me, but mine was an abysmal disaster because (laughs) not only could I not come up with 100 reasons, uh, but it just, it was poorly executed. But I, I think that what that, in my mind, lit was this idea that you didn't have to do things in a conventional way that, what these tools gave us was an opportunity to be creative, was an opportunity to stand out because what had happened was we went from being in an economy that had rewarded people for fitting into almost overnight being in one that rewarded people for standing out. So, you know, prior to all of this, it was, do you meet these check boxes that the, the, you know, resume machine looks for Ivy league school, high GPA, all that stuff. You in particular probably know that firsthand because you wanted to work in finance Mm -hmm. and Suddenly, that was gone. Uh, that The only way that you were going to stand out was by actually not hitting all those checkboxes. In fact, you're better off if you stood out. So for me, you know, I, I enrolled in this online course about how to build a blog. That uh, kind of evolved with time. You know, I got better at it, and, and, and uh, that was the start of interviews. One of the lessons in that course was to interview somebody as a way to get traffic to your website. And instead of interviewing one person, I ended up starting a weekly series, and that series ended up uh, turning into a podcast for bloggers, which four years later was subsequently spun out into what is now The Unmistakable Creative.
0: hmm I think the important point that you brought up is the idea of taking action. So, you know, I've looked through resumes of people in the past when I had to hire, and sometimes people come out of school and when you look at them on paper, they look great, right? They have the knowledge from school, they did certain courses, they did certain um, tests with other people and presentations, but when it comes down to it, you have to look for the person who has decided to take action and has something to show, whether that's you know, building a website to represent what they're about, getting creative um, you know, with your idea and the person that you had mentioned prior, or even simply recording interviews and creating blog content. And I think a lot of people today get lost in that because they, there's so much opportunity to express yourself, but there can also be so much backlash in the social world that we're in that sometimes people get petrified and frozen because they, they don't know how to deal with Um, anything negative, really, because they're kind of in that positive bubble through school. And then they get out and the real world is extremely scary at that point.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that you brought up a key thing, which is action, right? Uh, I'm always interested in in tangible evidence of something somebody's done rather than what they say they know how to do. Uh, I think that that's something I've even learned in the process of hiring people is we always do a trial run to say, okay, you know what? I don't care what you say you know how to do. I want you to show me. Uh, I, you know, so for example, recently hired a new editor for a podcast and, uh, what I realized was, okay, I want you to actually give me a sample, do a sample edit, write up a description of one of the episodes, show me what this looks like. And I knew immediately that we had our guy after he did one episode and I said, okay, you got it. Like you nailed it. This is what I'm looking for. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, In my mind, people have to do what they need to to stand out. I think a body of work is far more valuable than a resume, partially because of the fact that you can take it with you anytime you go somewhere. It's something that stays with you. It's not, hey, I did all this work for this company, and they're going to keep all this intellectual property that I've built for them, but I'm not going to get to take it with me. It's going to mean absolutely nothing uh, when I go to uh, wherever I go to next, whereas a body of work follows you for your life. And so in a lot of ways, you're you're planting, a lot, planting seeds throughout time for the person that you want to become. And I was just writing about this today. Uh, I think that almost anybody could change their life just by writing for an hour a day. And the thing that causes people to resist that is they only see the outcome, uh, not the process by which somebody's life has changed by doing something simple like that. And habits have a compounding effect. So you might say, OK, I'm going to start writing 1,000 words a day, or I'm going to write for an hour a day starting this week, and nothing will happen next week, nothing will happen for the week after, nothing will happen for the month after, or maybe another month after. But maybe two, three months down the road, suddenly you'll start to see something happening by it. Uh, Then another couple months go by, you'll start to see more happening. And I've witnessed this firsthand in my own life. When I started this 1,000 word a day idea, within two months, I was asked to come speak at a conference. The talk that I gave at that conference became the foundation for the book that you mentioned, The Art of Being Unmistakable, and then after two years of doing this habit, uh, I ended up getting a book deal. So I saw firsthand that, okay, wait a minute, if you do this one thing consistently over an extended period of time, there will be a compound effect, but most people won't stick with it because they can't see the immediate result. Uh, And I think that that could be applied to virtually anything.
0: I 100% agree. I think the idea that you see the overnight success and especially, so I'm in Los Angeles and you everybody always talks about, oh, there's the overnight success here and there, but you don't actually see the many, many years of work that goes into what you're seeing as their success now, right? So having that body of work, doing the work by yourself at home, sitting down, making sure that you're creating the habit to do the work is so important. And I feel like fundamentally that's something that's a little bit lost because we see You know, with YouTube and podcasts and everything else that comes with having a voice and being able to reach people globally, you see that something happens, but you don't actually know the work that goes into it. And I think that's a it's a dangerous spot to be in. And that's why things like the different challenges that are out there are so important, because it reminds us to do the work for ourselves in order to become better at what we do.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, um, you brought up doing the work for ourselves, which is largely what the subject of my most recent book was about, but I think social media in particular has created this sort of world in which we feel this endless need to compare ourselves to other people, this endless need to compete with other people, and I, I think there are good and bad things that have come from social media. I think that what we have to realize is that, yes, these tools are great, yes, they give us access to things, but if our use of them is not mindful and deliberate then what we end up doing is we get used by the tool as opposed to the other way around. And we fail to realize that by the way, the makers of the tool have other motives other than allowing us to, to benefit from this product. It's not as if, you know, the, the makers of any of these tools, uh, Necessarily have just benevolent intentions. If you think about it, right? You look at something like Facebook. The goal of Facebook is not for you to connect with your friends. Yes, that's that's kind of a nice way to say, okay, our mission is to connect the world. While their mission is to connect the world, their business is to sell your attention and to capture it. And so, you know, when the business and the actual uh, mission are not necessarily aligned in that way, you you have to realize that okay. Yes, I'm being connected. Yes, I'm experiencing some of these benefits. But it's not necessarily with benevolent intent. Their intent is not necessarily to help you connect with your friends, but more so to uh, to, to sell your attention to, to advertisers. And that's what's made it as successful as it is. And, and do you think about it, you know, the fact is it's a billion dollar, comp- multi-billion dollar company. Uh, and they've done it by by doing one thing, by selling your attention.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And you brought up a good point about, you know, the, the point of these companies is they do provide a platform for you to create and put things out there. And to the normal layman person, they're like, oh, great. I have this way to connect with others. I can, you know, they ask for a couple of things, but it's completely fine. And I think the getting the external validation can be a dangerous place because you put things out there, you want to connect with people, you know, especially if Facebook and YouTube, you wait for comments or interactions with your posts, and I know you've brought up the idea, I believe you call it the team of rivals, where you have your inner circle of people who provide you feedback and can be constructive. And I'd love to hear you talk about um, you know, what, what the concept of that is and why it's important.
1: Yeah, so I think that one thing that you have to understand about feedback and criticism, particularly in a world where you have the ability for anonymous strangers on the internet to offer you feedback on your work is how to discern who's worth listening to and who's not worth listening to. So you uh, you you mentioned my, my book, The Art of Being Unmistakable, and you know that book did really well through a series of freakish coincidences. But if you reach a large group of people, inevitably you're going to reach people who don't like what you do. And that's something you have to learn to, to live with. And not only that, learn to discern when it's worth listening to this person. So, for example, a woman who wrote a review of Art of Being Unmistakable, and this is the only review that I can quote to you by memory, uh, which tells you kind of how criticism works, is she said, uh, I hope this guy's a better surfer than he is a writer. Like, as if that is useful in any way at all. Uh, and does it really matter that somebody who I've never met, who's had no interactions with me, happens to not think highly of my work when there are 340-something other five-star reviews? Uh, same thing, you know, in terms of the podcast. You know, I have people who will... The, the, sometimes we get a one-star review. I mean, we don't get many of them, but it's a, once in a blue moon we get a review where somebody's like, yeah, this show sucks. And I can say, okay, what am I going to do? Listen to this one person or look at the other 500 five-star reviews... And on the flip side of that, there's criticism worth listening to. So I work with a writing coach in all of my books, and she doesn't sugarcoat her feedback. She's tough. Sometimes she'll just write lazy or try again, you know, and we're going through the Google Doc. And you're you're kind of like, okay, well, that makes me cringe. And at the same time, that's precisely what I am paying for her, paying her for. I am paying her to be hard on me and to push me so that I can write something really good, as opposed to having somebody who just strokes your ego. Uh, I'll give you one other example. So I had a woman who wrote in, and she was a longtime listener of the podcast, and she said, Srini, I love the podcast. And so right off the bat, I thought, okay, you know what, this is worth listening to because she's somebody who actually is a supporter of my work. And she had one piece of feedback, which uh, when she pointed it out, I became hyper-aware of it. It was really simple. She said, have you ever noticed that you say, I'm curious before every question you ask? And I didn't notice it until she pointed it out. And then it's all I could notice every time I heard an interview. And it just made me cringe. And I realized that she was absolutely spot on by eliminating that one thing. My transition from one question to another would be a thousand times smoother. So it's really about learning to discern uh, what feedback is worth listening to.
0: Yeah and I think it's it's so easy to take it personally when you're creating something you know with your heart and soul and you're putting things out there and doing things that are outside of the norm and on the plus side you know you have audience members where it is eliciting some kind of emotion whether they truly truly love it or whether you know they they had the takeaway that you do surf obviously they they did pull things from reading that book and then they decided to kind of jab you with it and say I hope he surfs better than he writes so that's the the difficult thing about art is you know you're going to evoke emotion, but at least you aren't evoking nothing. You know, at least you are eliciting some kind of response from people.
1: Yeah, well, my friend Justine Musk always says that if you, you know, I remember she said this to me in an interview. She said if you have a bold and compelling point of view, you're going to piss some people off.
0: Exactly, exactly. I love that. So you did mention The Art of Unmistakable a couple of times, and I believe that was a self-published book.
1: Yes, it was.
0: Do you want to kind of walk us through the process? Um, Were you trying to get it published with somebody else and then you decided to go that route? Or did you start going that route from the beginning?
1: Well, so I had talked to a, a bunch of people who you know uh, might have been able to push uh, you know me getting a book deal like a couple of agents, but I wasn't ready I, and I remember this woman told me that in two thousand and twelve she said, "You're not ready and she did me a huge favor because it gave me two more years to work on the craft and to be honest, part of the reason I self published was because I just I got to the point where I felt like, okay, you know what it uh, doesn't seem like anybody's going to come knock on my door anytime soon. I think that my best bet is to take matters into my own hands, and I'm just going to self-publish. So that's that. And, you know, to, to, to hell with this idea of a publisher, maybe I won't be doing a, a book with a publisher ever. So I'm, I'm done. And I, I think it goes to that whole uh, waiting to be picked idea, right, that, that, that Seth Godin shares, is when you start, there's a sort of paradox where, where when you stop waiting to be picked, it, you end up getting picked. It's kind of like dating and relationships right you ever notice that when you finally stop trying to meet somebody you somehow do with like no effort whatsoever or anything in life right everything that you stop you fight ends up having power over you and everything you accept doesn't so i finally just said you know what the hell with it. i'm going to self-publish uh, I did not know what it was going to lead to. I had no idea that it would turn into the the, the circus that it did. You know, I, out of through a series of freakish coincidences, Glenn Beck ended up finding it. I ended up yeah you know, being on the Glenn Beck show and selling tens of like selling some exorbitant number of copies. In fact. My self-published book was more successful than both of my traditionally published books have been uh, in terms of number of copies sold. It's not nearly as well written. but My other two books are much better. like They're actually higher quality writing because I did them with a publisher. So it wasn't necessarily uh, you know, me trying to get it published. It was a matter of, of me saying, you know what, I'm not going to wait. I'm done waiting to be picked. And I think that that's a valuable lesson for people. If you have an idea and you want to get it out into the world, there's no reason to wait for somebody else to give you permission to get that idea out into the world, particularly in the world that we live in. Because even if you publish an Amazon book and people tell you it sucks, well, that's great. You know, the beauty of Amazon and CreateSpace is that you can update it. You can go and change it. Like, you don't get that luxury with a self-published book, so or with a traditionally published book. So if I wanted to, if I wanted to self-publish a book and you know people are like, ah, this isn't quite great, I could go back and I could update it, I could revise it. Like, it, it, I think it does offer you a lot of benefits that most people don't think about.
0: Yeah and I think you know you touched on a on a particular point and I believe the universe truly rewards action. So if you are to take the action and put things into motion, I believe that good things will follow. And I was actually going to ask what are the, you know, freakish coincidences that happened after you had published your book, but you had mentioned some of that and it's incredible how things kind of fall into place and I'm I want to know how you handled that change so when you published that and you had all of the following events, how did you Mm. mentally handle, you know, a lot of the changes and things that you had to do that you haven't done before once that happened?
1: Not very well, (laughs) (laughs) to put it lightly. Uh, So here's the thing. When you go from uh, sort of lingering obscurity to suddenly overnight being, you know, in the spotlight, Nothing, there's really nothing that can prepare you for it other than the experience of going through it. And I remember having a conversation with a woman who helped edit the book and, and she said, do not forget the guy who was happy to sell 300 copies of this book, and I completely lost sight of that. Uh, I think that it was surreal, it was cool, it was awesome, and the thing that you, you realize after, after it's over is the fact that moments like that are temporary. Uh, that all your moments in the spotlight, whether that's a, a giant media appearance, whether that's the day that you get a book deal, whether that's the day that you publish a book, all those sort of big moments, the accolades are all temporary, whereas everything you do in between is, is really where you spend your time. And so I kind of went you know, from an extreme high to an extreme low after all that happened. And, and you know that's a whole long story, which I don't want to bore you with the details of, but it, you know, I went from the best, one of the best years of my life in 2013, to the worst year of my life in 2014 through a series of, of just things that went wrong: business partners bailing out, uh, a relationship not working out, a lot of other stuff. You know, and then uh, when I when I went to see a doctor, she said, "You know, you go from an extreme high to an extreme low. That's going to send you into a tailspin." And so, I think that it made me hyper aware of when things like that happen, and and not to see them as as big a deal as they are to kind of temper my expectations around those things and to just temper my demeanor around those things to say okay you know what it's cool to be excited like yes this is great but don't get you know too caught up in it because it it it, all of it is temporary
0: Mm -hmm. do you wish that you still had some of the autonomy from when you were self-published versus now when you're working with a publisher or do you can you handle the pressure now and you're able to put that into your work in a different way
1: Well, I don't think the the pressure is not so much from the creative process as it is uh, from the the process of publishing and putting together the product in general so you know one fight that I've never won with my book publisher is cover book covers uh, even though you know I, I've been very happy with the book covers and they've turned out really well I wanted my own artist for my book covers I wanted the guy who did the art of being unmistakable to be the book cover artist for both my books and uh, I never won that fight no matter how hard I fought them they would not cave and, and let you know, um, Mars, the, the artist that I use for everything, do the covers. And it was just a battle that I was never going to win. So in that sense, yes, you do lose some autonomy. But I, I think as far as the pressure goes, I, I don't feel any more pressure. In fact, I think that part of what happens is that you are leveled up as a result of this process. Like You just end up creating a better product, I think, because uh, publishers don't let you mail it in. At least my publisher doesn't. You know, If you have a good publisher, you have a good writing coach, they're going to work you hard until what you've done is is good, and and you're proud of it. Because you get to do this maybe once or twice, maybe three times if you're lucky. And what people don't realize is that this is something that your name is going to be on. And if you don't get to do it more than once, make sure it's something you're proud of. I've I've seen people sign lousy book deals and publish lousy books at low advances simply because of the vanity of, of having their name on a book that a publisher vetted. I mean, I knew somebody who paid a publisher in order to to have her book published. And I'd never heard of anybody doing anything like that. And and that's just, you know, I, I think that sometimes your vanity can get in the way of, of creating any real value.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, the vanity, especially if you aren't able to create that value, can be a not necessarily a black mark, but it does set a precedent for how people will view your upcoming work if you start off on the wrong foot. So I'm really big of the mind, take the steps slowly, do the action, do what you need to do, and don't jump to something that may seem too good to be true because you may just kick it off on the, on the wrong foot and it won't lead to what you're truly seeking.
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt.
0: So you're writing, teaching, you're interviewing with the podcast. What does a typical day look like for you? Do you have a typical day? Do you block off certain days for certain types of activities? Let me know a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm very much a creature of habit and and routines and systems and rituals are are huge parts of my life. I mean, if you read my entire body of work on Medium, that's pretty much all it's about. Uh, And there's a reason for that, because I have a really short attention span, so I have a certain set time window in which I can get things done, and if I don't get things done in that window, I'm totally screwed. So I wake up at like 5.30 or 6 every morning, I meditate for 10 minutes, I uh, read for 30 minutes, and then I write 1,000 words. Like, I'd repeat that process day in day. Out so that's the first thing I do every morning. Uh, then uh, basically I have interviews scheduled uh, Tuesday through Thursday and from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. and I do that every other week. So that way I have off weeks where I can kind of just work on other stuff, you know, writing, uh, you know, whether that be stuff you know, strategy wise, business wise, uh, you know, books. So I, I I realized I had to give myself time away from interviews. So I try to have a very deliberately designed schedule. Uh, I'm pretty good at this point about using tools like rescue time to block distractions. Uh, I limit my time on, on sites like Facebook to, I I think all of last week when I got to the end of the week, I was like, wow, I spent all of like 35 minutes in on the whole week on, on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm going out of my way to try and spend time doing deep work because I, I've realized that the, the ROI on it is way higher than the ROI I might get from sort of the temporary, you know, dopamine-driven feedback loop that would come from uh, somebody liking something that I put on Facebook. Uh, there's no real value to that uh, in, in the long run. I mean, it's kind of like, okay, cool. I mean, sometimes it's useful to vet or test ideas. But overall, uh, I, I tend to be a, a creature of habit, and, and really I'm driven by ritual and routine.
0: And I love that because I feel like when you wake up in the morning and you really pour into yourself and you're doing activities that really ground you, it takes away from the reactivity that I feel we have now, especially with social media and you know even having your inbox filling up every morning. So for mm-hmm. me, I, I can't look at my inbox before 9 or 10 a.m. because I instantly go into the reactive mode where I feel like I have to reply to people or I just set unnecessary pressure on myself because in my head... I feel like they're waiting for me to reply or I feel like on social, you know, they're wondering, oh, why hasn't she replied back? And it's just that negative talk that that happens in your brain when you allow the world to infiltrate before you really ground yourself.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I, I think you bring up a really good point. And, and the thing is, I, I don't remember who said it, but somebody said that your inbox is other people's priorities list. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, exactly what you're talking about. We live in a world where we're encouraged to be reactive rather than proactive. And part of the way you stop being reactive is by deliberately setting aside time for the things that you know you want to do. Uh, I think that that is a really, really important thing. And most people are, are not good at it because what they do is they let other people's priorities dictate the way that they start their day.
0: hmm Definitely. So at this point, you are doing a lot of different things. You have your days and your life designed. So at what point we talked a little bit about the first book and the self-publishing process. And then we also know that you have the podcast and the interviews. So at some point you started releasing different courses and you're also teaching. How did that come about? And at what point did you realize that was something that you needed and wanted to integrate into your routine?
1: Well, as far as, as teaching courses and, and sort of bringing all this other stuff about, I mean, part of it is I realized I wanted to make money. So, uh, you know, I mean, you have to make money to make to, to earn a living. And, you, you know, if you're running a business, then you, know, you have to find ways to generate revenue. Otherwise, you don't have a business, you have a hobby. And that's a hard lesson, I think, for a lot of people, particularly because they've given so much away for free. And and when we brought on our our content strategist and copywriter, Kingshook, he kind of came to us and he said, all right, this is what you guys have in terms of assets. And what I think you need to do is, is package what you have into your expertise and offer something. Because... I think that I didn't realize just how much I had to offer in terms of sort of the wealth of knowledge that I've I've gained between the fact that I've not only interviewed all these people, but I've also put into practice a good amount of the things that I've learned from the people that I've interviewed. So, you know, I've I've learned how to change my behavior based on kind of, um, you know, what uh, what basically everybody has said. So it's one of those things where I think that it was just kind of a, a natural byproduct. It, it probably sh- it should have been something we did earlier, but I think part of it was trying to figure out, okay, wh- what's the business model here? Like, what are we going to do to have sort of a predictable revenue stream? And so that's where uh, where basically the, the whole idea of of courses and all this other stuff came in.
0: I love that you had mentioned. You know, you didn't realize how much stuff there was that you actually knew, and I think we tend to take that for granted. You know, there's a lot of things I know that. I've worked on in the past where I've taught people. And until you really start to try to figure out how to drive revenue and create that business model, you don't mm-hmm. know the kind of knowledge you have that other people would be jumping through hoops to just understand how to do because they don't know how to do it themselves. And yes. you also brought up a great point about you know turning it into a business and having to make money because I feel as creatives or people doing any kind of creative work or even people trying to turn hobbies into business you're afraid to charge and you kind of feel a little weird about charging people for that value. And I think it's a, there's a lot of a mental game there because you feel, Oh, I've, I've given this stuff away for free. I have this community. Who am I to feel like I can charge people, but it's really knowing that you have that value and that there are people who are lucky enough to, to be able to learn that from you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it, 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 and ultimately it's irresponsible for you not to make your business profitable.
0: Exactly. So I have a question um, just after after everything that we've talked about. Do you feel that people have one or two specific things or ways that they're meant to impact the world? Or do you feel that it's a series of choices and you really have you know, 10, 20 different avenues in which you can, you can create your impact?
1: Well, that's a tough one, uh, mainly because I think it varies from person to person. But what I will say is this. I, I think that part of the reason that people have such a diverse set of interests or feel like they can't find their passion is because they don't give something long enough to figure out whether they can make an impact. And so I think that the whole follow your passion mantra has created a lot of, sort of nonsensical behavior because there are things that people are passionate about that nobody's ever going to pay them for. Like, nobody's going to pay me to surf. I'm passionate about surfing, but I'm never going to be Kelly Slater. Uh, So that should very much be kept a hobby. And I I think that what we don't look at is, is, okay, what are the things that I find engaging uh, that intersect with sort of a need, you know, in a marketplace or in a community? Like, what are the things that you find engaging that intersect with the potential for impact? That's where I think you tend to find those things. So... In one way, I think that people do themselves a great disservice by just having way too many interests because they don't go deep enough into one thing to see if there's any potential for a result from that one thing. Uh, That being said, there's nothing that we're meant to do, I think, forever nowadays. Uh, I don't know. Am I going to be interviewing people 20 years from now? That's hard to say. The world is going to look so different 20 years from now than it does today, and, and it looks you know, way different than I did 10 years ago when I started this. When I started this 10 years ago, I wasn't thinking that I was going to try to turn this into a living. I, I thought, hey, this is something cool to do on the side of my job. It's, it's fun. It's interesting. Maybe it'll turn into something. And it has, but I couldn't have planned that. And I think that's part of the, the sort of jug balancing act, right, is that you have to do a lot of experimentation, but you have to give your experiments a long enough timeline to see if they could take you anywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And I, I love that you mentioned the idea about passion, because passion essentially is pain. It's something that you love so much and you are so obsessed with that you can't oftentimes see clearly around that. Around that. And a lot of people view that as a good thing. But when you try to turn passion into something that could pay you, very often it's not, it's not a straight line. It's something that could be more difficult than taking a different path. And I think a lot of people neglect to, to really think about that.
1: Yeah, no doubt.
0: So I want to take it back a little bit. Um, You mentioned two things. You had mentioned a job earlier, which I do want to touch on. But as far as college, do you feel that going into college, um, and I know that this is different for everybody, but personally for you, do you feel college provided you a lot of skills that you took into the world? Or do you feel like if you had started doing what you were doing now earlier and didn't have the college experience, you might be a little bit further or um, honed your skills a little bit more if you didn't have that block of college time.
1: Well, I think part of it is based on when and where you went to college. So I, I went to Berkeley, and this was in the early late late nineties. The world was really different then. At that time, I think that life would have been a lot harder without a college degree. Do I think that I learned things in college that have served me in my jobs? No, not necessarily. Like I, I got an economics degree. Most of what I learned in college, at least from an academic standpoint, I'd never use. Uh, but I think what I learned from the experience of, of a place like Berkeley in particular is how to be resourceful and how to deal with ridiculously high amounts of stress because everything there is just an ordeal. Something as simple as getting a class dropped is an ordeal there. Like it involves waiting in lines and talking to 50 people who can't give you a straight answer. Uh, so I think it teaches you how to be very, very resourceful. And that's that's what I think was the more valuable part of, of going to college. hmm
0: I agree, a lot of it is the the community and the pressure and the stakes. So even if you don't have the, the hard specific skills that you take into a job, there's a lot that comes with being in a public place for a number of hours a day around so many different people that you can really grab some lessons from.
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt.
0: So as far as a traditional job or something that you were working on the side when you were building all of the things that you're building now, did you have something like that?
1: I did. I had a, a day job at an online travel company for the first year that I – I my, my first job post-business school while I was building this, and that worked out well because – I had a day job where my job was to build a blog for an online travel plan- brand and manage their social media. So basically, my side project helped me do my day job, and vice versa. Uh, so, but that being said, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from day jobs uh, about day jobs was from this woman named Diana Valentine, and she said that you know if you have uh, aspirations to start a business or, or you know a passion project of some sort, then your day job really is the, basically your first angel investor in your company, and that's how you should treat it.
0: I, I love that because I think a lot of people neglect to think about when you're working on somebody else's company and you're learning these skills, you're essentially being paid to learn. You are learning from people who are running a successful business for, for the most part, or hopefully. And you're getting a chance to learn a lot of skills from people within the company that you might have to kind of grind through if you weren't in that, in that process. So a lot of people might devalue the idea of a traditional job or a part-time job or anything when they're building what they truly want to build but I think there's great value in that and um, you, you know you you can't replace what you can get in that environment and you can stick it out when you're building your own thing but you're gonna to have to find mentors or other people in the industry still to kind of lean on and give you that that additional help when you need it.
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: When was the? Did you find that there was a right time when you essentially stopped devoting time to that job and also what you were building, or did you kind of take the leap and hope that it figured it out as you were building your your um, building mm-hmm. your main thing?
1: Well, you know, it kind of happened organically. And it, this is a really tough question to answer because it's very nuanced. It's totally different for everybody. It's based on their circumstances. So I, I was let go from that job. First, my hours were cut to 10 hours a week. And when I found that out, I told my, my boss there's no reason for me to, to live in LA then because I can't afford to live in LA on 10 hours a week. And so I moved to Costa Rica, hung out there for six months. And uh, then I came back and I moved back to my parents' house where I stayed for a really long time, like far longer than anybody my age should be. And and, you know, I I tried to find a job, I didn't have much luck, and in the meantime, basically while I was trying to find a job, I kept working on this thing. So it took a long time, it took like five or six years. Uh, It happened very organically, I wish I could say that these are the steps I followed to the letter and this is your your formula for how to go from your day job to to basically making a living off your passion project. I don't know that there's a a perfect formula for that. Uh, Even though I, I think people endlessly look for one.
0: Right. And as far as, um, and I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but I do know that we're quite a ways through the interview and I want to be respectful of time. So you had mentioned way back in the beginning that, um, you love to surf. Surfing is your meditation. Do you have any other activities outside of that throughout your day? If you're really stressed, um, and you're not focused on meditation or surfing that you like to do to kind of equal out the balance?
1: Yeah, I mean, this started recently, but at the recommendation of a friend, I I joined a CrossFit gym, and it's like a total ass-kicking. Like, you get in there, and you hate every minute of it, but you feel amazing when you get out. Um, So that's been really, really eye-opening. I think it's kind of taught me a lot about persistence and and fitness, and uh, I think it just makes you appreciate your habits and your health a lot more because you're doing such a hard workout.
0: Mm -hmm. I have a friend who does CrossFit. He's tried so many times to convince me to go with him, but I'm convinced that I'll die.
1: So CrossFit... It's, It's brutal. It's brutal. It's It's brutal. And, and, you know, you, when you get done, you're kind of like, okay, you know what? Like I get why people do this.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure it's kind of the the pain and pleasure type reward afterwards where you feel good. But in the moment you're like, Oh God, why did I choose to do this? (laughs) Yeah. So I want to jump into a speed round where essentially I ask a bunch of questions and I don't need any additional context. I'm really interested in what your, your actual first tip of tongue answer is. Are you ready? Okay, so favorite book or podcast?
1: Favorite book probably uh, is The Great Gatsby, I guess, even though I haven't read it in years. But I mean, I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald's books that want made me want to be a writer when I was younger. Uh, as far as podcasts go, strangely, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts.
0: Interesting. I found that very interesting. Yeah. So as far as, I, we didn't talk about music at all, but a lot of people have specific songs that they really love to listen to if they're either down or they want to get really excited. Do you have, is music a part of your life, and do you have two songs that are that do that for you?
1: Yeah, music is a huge part of my life. I was a musician in high school, almost was a music major in college. Uh, There's a song called Verge by Owl City, which I use basically as my alarm uh, for my Google home. Like I set my alarm to that song for the morning.
0: I'm sure that's much better than waking up to the very annoying and shrill iPhone or Android alarm. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay. So I have four words here, boldness, adaptability, fearlessness, and confidence. Which of these words do you feel got you to where you are now? And what is one you still want to build upon?
1: Uh, definitely boldness. I think that that's really what, at its core, if you look at the way that we have have done things with Unmistakable, um, <clears throat> yeah, we've definitely been bold in terms of the way that we've gone about things. Uh, as far as what I want to develop now more is probably confidence.
0: And as far as somebody in your life, it could be somebody you directly know or somebody that you listen to or watch from afar, who do you feel truly lives permissionless?
1: Who do I feel lives permissionless? You know, I have a friend in Colorado uh, who is an executive coach for startup founders a guy named Joseph Logan, and I think he really is. He's the embodiment of that in a lot of ways.
0: And as far as one piece of advice, if you, if you know of somebody who wants to make the leap, but they're scared or they, they just have a lot of fear going into it, what is the piece yep. of advice that you would give them?
1: Uh, I would say don't just choose from the options that are put in front of you uh, that is one thing I wish people really understood is that, you know, when you choose just from the options that are put in front of you, you miss out on the possibilities that surround you.
0: Oh, I love that. And lastly, is there anybody that you would like to see on the Permissionless podcast?
1: Um, well, if you can land Trevor Noah, let me know.
0: (laughs) I definitely will. And if people are looking for you online, we've mentioned, you know, your, your site a couple of times, but where can people find you?
1: Um, that would be the primary place is unmistakablecreative.com. And if they're into podcasts, you can find the Unmistakable Creative in iTunes or anywhere else where podcasts are hosted.
0: Perfect. And as far as your latest book, do you want to share what that title is so people can go and search that up?
1: Totally. It's an audience of one reclaiming creativity for its own sake, uh, you know, combined with a, a combination of stories and very practical insights on how to develop an ongoing uh, lifelong creative practice. And you can find that anywhere where books are sold.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I feel like we, we got a chance to really talk about the creative aspect of things instead of more of the business side. And I appreciate that because it's something that as a creative, you struggle to kind of control mentally and build what you want to build. So there's a lot of insightful nuggets here and I'm, I'm so glad we got to have this conversation.
1: I'm glad you found it valuable and uh, appreciate you having me.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into the second season of Permissionless. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast Share it with somebody that you think would love it. We are a very small team, so any kind of sharing you can do, we 100% appreciate it. In the meantime, check us out on permissionless.com, and you can find me on all social networks as Selena Vidia.